Our scripture today is 1 Samuel chapter 8, and it tells the story of a people who stand at a crossroads and feel as shaky as we do in the world today. They had a history with God that was filled with hundreds of stories of uh, God's faithfulness, but Israel now wonders. They now wonder if it is time to change the road they are traveling on. Now, earlier in chapter, in uh, the earlier chapters of 1 Samuel, Israel was stuck in the chaos of the period of the Judges. And you can read about that in the book of Judges. There we find that there's political turmoil. Uh, Israel is constantly threatened by neighboring enemies. There's also spiritual torment, uh, turmoil because they are stubborn towards God and they do whatever is right in their own eyes. Well, then we come to 1 Samuel chapter 4. Israel loses the ark to the enemy. They cannot seem to shake the Philistines. And it happened because Israel rushed into battle without asking God for direction or protection. Instead, in their arrogance, they marched into battle, believing the Ark of the Covenant was a good luck charm, which would ensure Israel's victory over the Philistines. But what happened instead? Yep, the Israelites were wiped out, and the Ark of the Covenant became the possession of the Philistines. Eventually, the time comes when the Philistines are terrified by the Ark of the Covenant, and so they send it back to Israel. And then we come to chapter 7, uh, when faced with yet another Philistine threat, Israel repents, and they turn to the Lord. And the author reports peace for the nation during the lifetime judgeship of Samuel. Like in the book of Judges, in 1 Samuel, Israel follows the cycle of unfaithfulness, military defeat, repentance, and peace. But then, then we come to 1 Samuel chapter 8, and rather than start the cycle all over again, Israel breaks the pattern. They have come to the same crossroads as in previous times, but this time, this time they don't take the expected path of the world. They take the ancient path. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 to 5. It says this, When Samuel grew old, it's estimated that 30 years have passed since the end of chapter 7. Samuel appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. Now, the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they uh, served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow Samuel's way. They turned aside after dishonest gain, and they accepted bribes and perverted justice. Verse 4, So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Isn't that interesting? From these verses, what would you say is the newest threat? That Israel faces. Believe it or not, it's not the Philistines. The newest threat they face are Samuel's sons. Now, Samuel has served faithfully as a prophet. He served faithfully as a priest and a judge. He knows his time of leading Israel is ending, so he appoints his sons to follow in his footsteps as the next generation of judges. Now, this is odd. 
It is odd to see Samuel do this because for the past 350 years in Israel's history, it was God who selected the individuals to serve as his judges. But now, for some reason we're never told, Samuel believes he is qualified to choose his successors. And this shows a weakness in Samuel. He has a desire to indulge his sons. And sure enough, Samuel's sons proved worthless. The text says his sons did not walk in Samuel's ways. Again, that's odd. We would expect the text to say Samuel's sons did not walk in the Lord's ways. In this passage, I think there's a caution here for parents. You see, being a godly parent, which Samuel was, it is no guarantee that it will produce godly children. You see, a godly example alone, uh, it also must be include godly instruction, teaching about God's word. Our goal as parents is to have our children imitate Christ, not us. Back to the story. Samuel's sons, they never caught on to Samuel's way of living. Instead, the sons like to receive bribes for access to their power as judges of Israel. And God's people were warned about this back in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 19. It says this, You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise, and it twists the words of the righteous. And that's exactly what happens. The sons of Samuel are so blinded by money that they pervert justice. Chapter 8, verse 3. It doesn't take long for the elders of Israel to realize they have a ticking time bomb on their hands with the sons of Samuel. So what do the elders of Israel believe is the solution to this problem? Hmm. A king. The elders come to Samuel asking for a king. Asking for a king like a middle schooler approaches a parent for that new video game system that they want. Uh, did you catch their reasoning in verse 5? It's quite interesting. It says this. A paraphrase, if you will. We want a king because all the other nations have one. Why can't we? Do you hear the temper tantrum? Israel wants to be like the pagan nations around them. Listen to that again. Israel wants to be like the pagan nations around them. We see a problem here. You see, for generations, Israel has struggled to avoid being like the world around them. And so we see them struggling again and again. They struggle with idolatry. They struggle with immorality. Now, what does God think of this? Well, we actually find out in verses 6 to 9. Look what it says. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn, warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Man, there's so much insight in those verses. You see, the Lord cuts right to the heart of the matter. 
To ask for a king, a human king, like the pagan nations around them, is to reject God's kingship. But why? Why is asking for a king a rejection of God? A monarchy was God's plan for Israel since the beginning. He knew this day would come. Genesis chapter 17, God promises Abraham and Sarah that kings would come from them. Or how about Jacob and Balaam? It confirms that Judah will be the tribe that rules Israel in Genesis 49 and Numbers 24. Then there's Deuteronomy chapter 17. Before a king is ever appointed, the law gives this instruction for Israelite kings without any hint of disapproval. It tells them how to be a godly king. You see, the problem is not that Israel wants a king. God has a problem with the kind of king Israel wants. He has a problem with their motive for wanting a king. Israel does not want a king so they can move forward in their faithfulness to God. They actually are looking for a king to help them move away from God. Israel is not interested in becoming who the Lord intended them to be. They're interested in becoming like the other nations. This is typical of Israel, says the Lord. From the beginning of their relationship, Israel was squirmy under God's rule. They would rather serve any other God than serve God Almighty and be God's people. Even though, even though God was nothing but faithful to them. It makes me wonder, it makes me wonder if Samuel was surprised by God's response. God doesn't squash their demand by saying, I'm going to be your king whether you like it or not. Instead, he tells Samuel to give Israel what they want, a king. Now pay attention to this. God gives them what they want. But in giving them what they want, it comes with a warning in verses 10 through 15. Here's the warning. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some, some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. Verse 13, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. You see, there's a lesson here, a big lesson. Sometimes God gives us what we want as a punishment for our stubborn hearts. Sometimes God gives us what we want as a punishment for our stubborn hearts. Well, that God, that's what God warns Israel will happen. God's punishment for Israel is summarized by one word that occurs five times in verses 10 through 18. And I'm wondering if you caught it. What is that word? It's the word take. Take. 
The type of king Israel is requesting will be a parasite to God's people, taking and taking without giving in return. Such a king will take so much from Israel that God promises the day will come when Israel cries out to the Lord for relief from their king, as if their king were the Pharaoh of Egypt in the book of Exodus. But this time, this time, God will not hear and deliver them. With a pagan-like king, they will end up worse off than when they were in Egypt. Catch the irony of this whole story. Here's even further irony. The elders of Israel were concerned about Samuel's sons. Why? Because they, verse 3 says, because they took bribes. But they will now welcome a king who will take everything that is precious to the citizens of Israel. God was warning his people that a centralized human government under a human king would compete with the Lord's position in their culture. The king would demand to be the people's sovereign, but only God himself is sovereign. You see, it takes a bold faith to live with God as king. It takes a bold faith to live with God in, as king. In 1 Samuel 7, 7 to 14, the Philistines are surrounding Israel and Israel is terrified. Israel is waiting for Samuel to rally the troops. They're hoping Samuel will call out the tanks to roll out and, and cause the uh, uh, fighter jets to take off and head into the air. But instead, Israel watches Samuel offer a lamb as a sacrifice and pray to God to rescue them. Now, let me ask you, which would you rather have in war, a military fighting machine or a worship service where your leader is praying with a lamb that is being sacrificed, asking God to rescue you? With a praying judge, Israel was without a defense until God decides to rescue them. Patient courage exhausted Israel. They no longer want to cry out to God. They no longer want to trust him to raise up a deliverer when they're in danger. They don't want to wait on God for marching orders. Instead, they want a warrior king with a powerful army that can be called into service at a moment's notice to keep them safe and secure. It is easier to trust in the tanks and machine guns you can see than in a living God you must trust in by faith. Israel is basically telling God this, we're tired. God, we're tired of living by faith. The people of God want to take matters into their own hands. Now, none of us are ever like that, are we? God's warning to us is this. Taking matters into your own hands will drain you dry and leave you lifeless. It'll end badly. You'll be giving up the freedom that God gave you and returning to the slavery from which he delivered you from. Following the way of the world, it can seem safer. It can appear easier, but it's actually much more treacherous than the Lord's way. I don't think the ancient Israelites are the only ones who get mixed up at the crossroads of life abandoning God when the future seems uncertain. We do the same thing. When faithfulness takes too long, 
When faithfulness requires more courage than we want to risk, it is tempting to put our confidence in wealth. It's tempting to put our confidence in that new job with the larger salary or the bigger 401k or maybe an impressive job title. Providing for our families is a gift from God. We grant that. But when we find greater security and security in our salary and benefit packages than we do in God, we begin to imitate the world. When we tire of waiting on God to lead revival in churches, to lead revival in a nation, and so we grab for greater power and control through a political party or a human movement to make change happen faster, We can get so caught up on our political party or the movement we're a part of that we no longer depend on God. Instead, we imitate the world. These simply aren't poor habits we fall into so we can cope with the trials of life. They can be a blatant rejection of God as king. When we value what the world values and practice its habits, we reject God as king. So the warning to Israel is a warning for us as well. When standing at the crossroads, seek security the way God has called us to. Commit to following the leadership of God and mirror God's will. But what does it look like to follow the leadership? Of God. First uh, Samuel gives some ideas as the author tells us the story, story of Israel's first kings. Take Saul, for example. Saul is not a model of following God's leadership. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, Saul is a king with a physique of a warrior, but he has the faith of a coward. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, Saul is more concerned about his personal safety than God's reputation. No, following God's leadership looks more like David. David in 1 Samuel 24, who is so determined to uphold God's values that he will not even lay a hand on Saul, who is trying to assassinate David. It looks like David in 1 Samuel 25, when he entrusts justice to God rather than taking vengeance into his own hands. It looks like Rahab and Ruth, who leave behind national identity to take refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. It looks like Hezekiah. It looks like Jehoshaphat, who seek God in prayer and prepare, but refuse to take military action without God's marching orders. They wait on God. Ultimately, it looks like Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who was so convinced of the goodness and the trustworthiness of God that he offered himself as a sacrifice to bring others in to the kingdom. Jesus refused to accept the world's offer of the easy way out. Now, Satan, Satan's crossless route to power and fame, instead of submitting himself to God, he tempted him with those things, but Jesus stood strong. When they heaped, heaped abuse on him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges justly, to God. These are the heroes of faith who show us that following the leadership of God is to live by God's priorities and by the convictions of things that are unseen. 
It's patient preparation for the future and courage rooted in God's past faithfulness. Listen to the Lord's warning and don't be like Israel, whose fear at the crossroads of life caused them to reject God. Israel didn't seek the Lord in prayer. Israel didn't search for what God had revealed to them in the past to look for direction. Israel didn't listen to the warnings of their leaders. Israel didn't value their unique identity, but they took their cues from the pagans around them. Israel didn't trust God for their future. Heed the warning that Israel didn't. At the crossroads, embrace God and reject the kings this world offers you. Step forward with courage remembering that God's promises and priorities have never failed you before, and he won't start failing you now. So church, at the crossroads, when the way forward looks foggy, when the ground beneath your feet is shaky, always seek the leadership of God. Do you have the patient courage to follow God's lead, or do you want things your own way?